Welcome to the next episode of the Kuiper Collective Podcast. Once again, I'll be your host, Jeff Fisher, academic dean and a professor of theology at Kuiper College. This is week three of our discussion on the book From Lament to Advocacy, Black Religious Education in Public Ministry. The Kuiper College faculty committed to reading through and discussing this book together throughout the summer. It's very relevant. Uh, it's timely for sure. Um, but one of the main reasons we chose this book in particular, among the numerous great resources out there addressing racism and matters in the black community, is because one of our own teaching faculty, Dr. Rochelle White, wrote a chapter in this book. Um, we'll get to that chapter in a few weeks, so you'll have to stay tuned for that. Uh, this week, we're continuing our way through the book. We're on chapter two, Religious Educators as Public Ministry Leaders. This chapter is by Nathaniel West. Uh, Dr. West is a professor of and the MA Director in Christian Education, as well as the Director of Formation and Counseling at the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology at Virginia Union University in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, he also is one of the editors of this book. Uh, now, we, before we start our conversation on this chapter, I'd like to invite our other participants to introduce themselves. All right. Hey, uh, I'm Branson Parler, and I'm a professor of theological studies and excited for this discussion. I'm Libby Heisinga. I am the library services specialist at Kuiper College, but I am also an anti-racism educator. I'm Mike McCarty. I'm the coordinator of vocation, calling, and community life here at Kuiper College. All right. Thank you. It's great to be with you all and talking about this chapter and its implication for our lives and ministry and work. Um, again, for those listening to the podcast, some are also here to listen, and you may not hear from them or hear much from them. Uh, there are others with us who might submit some questions in the chat. So if and when those come, we'll also include those in our conversation. Um, and so, so while you can't actually see all of us here, uh, we find that it's important to model that all of us need to be in a posture of listening and learning, um, especially as those of us who are educators who are used to giving the answers. <laughs> Um, and so that's, that's an important reason why we have people who um, you may hear their voice in the introduction, but they don't actually come across in our conversation. We're here to listen. So this chapter centers on the role of the religious educator as public theologian. Uh, we as religious educators in higher education get specifically named in this chapter as those necessary to see change happen. Because of our positions in teaching, and training generations of students, what we say and do has exponential impact. Um, now, I personally, I find that both scary, but also exciting at the same time, um, because as this, as this chapter in, uh, demonstrates and entails, you know, we as public ministry leaders, which includes those of us teaching at places like Kuiper College, um, have a profound impact on the direction that things are going because of our impact on other people and students in particular. So uh, I want to start this conversation uh, at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, Dr. West introduces this idea of crescive leadership, um, a term that I was not familiar with. Those of you, uh, I see a few heads shaking, neither were you. It, th this idea of crescive leadership draws in participation of others, including and perhaps especially those whose voices may not often be included. Um, in particular, as we're talking about public ministry, uh, he notes that it's including those even outside the church in order to strategically organize and integrate these voices and perspectives, but still having, from his perspective here, the expectation that the churches are pivotal in the social change we need. So my, my first question is, what's your reaction to this approach to leadership? 
Um, perhaps have you seen this theory actually work? How does it connect with your own kind of philosophy or theories about leadership? Uh, I guess I can take a stab at it. I think that you know, if I understand what he's saying, a, a key here is not to uh, rely on just the church itself or just the church leader, uh, but it involves this posture of listening, of connection, of collaboration. Uh, and I think in, in doing that, uh, a lot of times, I think churches and church leaders can assume that, you know, we maybe have the answer or the solution to um, a variety of different social issues, questions, things going on, even in our own neighborhoods. Uh, and this just really emphasizes to me uh, what you were just highlighting earlier in terms of having a posture of listening, making sure that you're starting from a place of connection, listening and understanding rather than uh, just trying to kind of go it, go it on your own uh, and be the leader out there just charging, mm -hmm. maybe even in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and I mean, he sets it up in contrast to the kind of solo siloed leader. And, and I appreciate like even identified some of these names of historical black leaders like Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King Jr. But notes that they were not isolated siloed leaders by any means. They had entire groups of people. They might have been the, the visible person leading the charge, but they were by no means solo. Yeah, and what you just said reminded one one book that came to mind when I was reading this um, chapter was uh, James Davison Hunter's To Change the World, mm. where he talks about kind of our often our flawed mod models of how transformation actually happens. And that's one of the key points that he makes is we often think about cultural changes happening through one specific individual leader like Martin Luther King Jr. or Martin Luther, or, you know, he gives all kinds of historical examples uh, and really takes the time to show how properly understood, even those figures that we think of as pivotal figures were actually figures who were embedded in a network of people, uh, all working, pushing for, for similar things. Yeah. So I think that, so that, that's kind of a sociological confirmation of this point that he's making about, about this model of leadership. So there's a lot of different pieces to his definition of leadership. And so it was hard for me to answer initially because I was immediately relating all of the suggestions for leadership that he was giving to like successes and failures in my career in ministry. You know, thinking about times when it was like, man, we really should have practiced some leadership his style because uh, we reinvented the wheel when it didn't need to and it failed. Or like, man, this ministry as an alternative to the secular ministry doing the same thing really mm -hmm. just wasn't successful. And um, it really, I think, is a call to a lot of Christians to witness, to name, the presence of God that we're seeing in people who are not inside the church. Um, I, I see this a lot in my work in anti-racism ministry where we recommend a resource and it gets criticized for not being Christian enough. Mm -hmm. So right now, one that's going on is about the book White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, where a lot of white Christians are critiquing the fact that it's not a biblical worldview, mm -hmm. which I would argue against. I would say that this sort of self-examination and getting to the taking off the old self in order to put on a new self, whilst you might not be saying it with those Christian words, fits very well into our framework. 
But that same sort of criticism happens over and over and over again, that this person calling us to do some sort of social action or anti-racism work or other sorts of progress making behaviors aren't Christian, so we shouldn't listen to them. And I love that this chapter is putting its foot down about that. Because so often the church has turned inward and looked only at itself, or it has stayed silent on social issues while groups like Black Lives Matter are out there telling the mm -hmm. truth. And instead of saying, no, they need to come and join us, it's saying, no, we, need, we see God in you and we're going to join you. And I think that that's something the church as a whole needs to radically consider. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a thread throughout this chapter. And I mean, particularly right here at the beginning, he talks about these grassroots movements outside the church. I mean, you mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I mean, there's many other things that have happened like that. You know, what's, I'd, I'd be very interested in your thoughts and reactions about that, of how, how we think about what the church is responsible to do, what the church can partner with in other organizations, I mean, I know Branson with worldview stuff, with church stuff, we're constantly having the, talking about the kingdom of God. Um, we're constantly having this like, well, what is the church? Who is the church? What's, what's the church's responsibility? What are Christians' responsibilities who make up the church but are not the church themselves? I mean, we don't have to dig into all that, Pete, all that stuff. But, I mean, I know that's like there in the back of our minds. Yeah, because this... I mean, this chapter was really interesting to me because, and this, and what I'm trying to process is, uh, as somebody who is white, as part of the white church, who does, who has admittedly primarily, you know, when I think about, I wrote my dissertation on a, a white American theologian, but if, if this chapter if a lot of the content from this chapter had been written by a white theologian, I would have said, this is like a Christendom model mm -hmm. all the way through. This is, this is, this is what, what I was struggling to see was that the church, is it that the church, the church's telos is ultimately transformation of the broader society. Yeah. That, that, I mean, the, the way that I'm used to thinking about this, you know, it's almost like, the telos of the city of God is to transform the earthly city. So I've been trying to get, especially my uh, white, more conservative students to disconnect their Christianity from saying, here's a specifically, um, and, and by the way, if you're a Christian, here is, here are the movements you need to support in the broader political sphere. I'm trying to get them to step back from that to say, no, 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 for Christians, our, the, our first politics is the church, actually. And that God is doing something here new in the church, which of course doesn't set aside our responsibility in the broader society or the need to act there, but it doesn't conflate the kingdom of God or the church uh, with what I would call, as a from a Kyperian standpoint, this is good common grace endeavors. So if you're talking about the presence of God, the work of God in the broader culture and society, this is good common grace stuff um, that, that we should be advocating for, that we should be involved in without conflating that with special grace, with, with the church, with what God is doing through the church. And, and, and that's, a, that's a hard line to walk. That's a very difficult line to walk. But I think that whole 
cluster of topics here um, is, uh, yeah, is, is very tricky to work through in this context. I, I would agree with like, what is the need of a, a white conservative student? Um, in the history of the relationship between the evangelical church and in the United States, so often white Christians are involved in politics, but it's often about issues like abortion. You know, we have kind of this one-sided, yes, Christians will be involved in politics on this one issue. Whereas uh, this model seems to be suggesting that in the black church, there's the same sort of, we will be participating in politics, but it's a different set of issues. And it, it seems that this chapter is not responding to the needs of the traditional Kuiper student, mm -hmm, sure. as it has been historically, as you know, our students have been mostly white. This chapter wasn't written for them or for their needs, and it's not answering the questions or pushing back against the biases that our students have. But as educators in this institution, we need to be asking, is that actually true of all of our students? Are all of our students coming from white conservative Christian homes like we maybe have assumed they are? Or do we have other students in our midst that are in need of this sort of education? Instead of sort of withdrawing from a view of Christianity and politics being a certain sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we certainly know we have students who come from those different backgrounds. Um, yeah, I and mean, maybe it's kind of the next step of what's we've been deconstructing what perhaps is the worldview or the ecclesiology that our students come in with so that we can reconstruct it in a more biblical um, theological way and that this chapter in particular this book in particular is helping us think through how do we reconstruct this in a a more holistic, broader model. Yeah, what I appreciate about this is the focus. I think what, what makes this, um, what I appreciated about this is that when it talks about where you start, to me, this is very much you start with stories on the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, you start with local communities. And so it's, it's not a, it's, it's not political in the sense of, uh, I'm going to start from kind of like top down theories of, I'm a conservative, or I'm a progressive. It's you start with your neighborhood, you start with your community, you listen to what the needs are there, and you think about how can we work together as members of our community uh, to respond to the, the injustices that we see and the needs that we see there. And so that's, to me, that, that again is very different from sort of a tying of Christianity and politics together where it's like, you know, if you're a Christian, you're going to toe the line on conservative ideology and then you know eventually somebody just flips and then it becomes well if you're really a christian you're going to toe the line on progressive ideology this is much more um i think embedded in local communities and contexts in a way that i found at least to me that's that's the difference that i heard if i were to think about what this looks like uh, to, to to work this out in a more nuanced way mm -hmm. yeah it's not political as in belonging to political parties it's political in that it's concerned with the needs of the people and of the city first yes i i think one of the things that's difficult about that here and now today in the united states in 2020 is we've reduced politics to simply part like like 
partisanship. I'm going to tell I'm going to tell one of these two lines uh, here. But what does what does it actually mean to be for, for a church and its leaders to be concerned with the life of the individuals and the community uh, that that church is is serving uh, and that church exists in? Right. I, I think that's the big challenge of our context today is the polarization of our politicalness in the U.S. Yeah, and ironically, I mean, that kind of politics is actually mostly fairly removed in a lot of ways from the actual lives of our cities. Right. Our neighborhoods. right. So we're on social media and cable news talking about things happening, uh, you know, thousands of miles away. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, we don't know, you know, who's on our city council or school board or it's the call for more Christian Leslie Nopes, I guess. Uh, the, the Parks and Rec model of like, you know, it, I mean, that it is political. It's not meant to be partisan or polarizing. It's actually on the ground in a local city dealing with all the actually very kind of mundane and mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of stupid stuff you have to deal with uh, on a local level, like just trying to sort out some of these basics. And, and to me, though, that's the promise of I think there's more possibility for real change because you're not just looking for electronic sound bites. You're talking about this in terms of how can I turn this off, connect with my neighbors and think about the actual struggles and needs that we have and how to best address those. Later in the chapter, he uses this language of prophetic inquiry um, and talks about, you know, public ministry and everything. And I think this is related to a question that just popped up in the chat. Um, how can pastors specifically apply biblical principles to current events without being dismissed as political? I definitely hear this and read it and see it memed on Facebook. How, how can pastors do this well without just being said, well, that's just political or stop or even, I mean, explicitly told, don't preach about those things. Don't talk about those things because you're just fueling this polarization in our politics in the U.S. I have a few things that I would say to that. Uh, my, my first starting point is this quote um, from somebody that was interviewed as a part of a study on um, current Black religious thought. Uh, a Black activist is quoted saying, emulating Jesus is central to their work. Jesus was a freedom fighter. The cops came to arrest Jesus and dragged him off and executed him. I don't know how much more in tune with today's time we can get. And I love that it, it frames Jesus as the political figure that he was. I mean, mm -hmm. he was executed by the government. That is for saying things that were perceived as political threats. So to one end, I feel like the criticism of getting called political is not one we should be phased by. Additionally, I would add that not being political in church is a cultural value yeah that doesn't that isn't seen in every single christianity in the world so for example in the black church it is more acceptable to talk about politics from the pulpit than it is in the white church and then that's not a moral problem that's a that's a cultural difference if you're getting into more of the practical wisdom i'll maybe leave that part of it to somebody else but i don't think there's a problem with being political in the pulpit. I think- but We do so, have to speak in ways people can hear us, so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the challenge there, I'm, I'm just 
finishing up just finished up a book by Jonathan Lehman called the why the nation's rage rethinking faith and politics in a divided age. And I like, you know, the way he sets it out is, you know, thinking about what are, especially thinking about pastors, what are pastors actually authorized to speak to um, and speak about, um, you know, should pastors speak about, you know, economics, politics, all those kinds of things. And so the, the way that he he talks about it, which I think is, is helpful is, you know, he, he points out there will be some political matters where you can draw a straight line from here's what scripture teaches to here's how Christians as citizens need to conduct themselves. But that most matters in terms of politics are matters of prudential judgment and wisdom mm -hmm. where it's less of a straight line mm -hmm. and more of a jagged line. And, and he gives several examples of, you know, here's why, you know, Republican Christians would argue for this, and here's why Democratic Christians would argue for this. You can bring forth scripture and work from these principles to get to actually opposing viewpoints on a specific practical matter. And so I think, I think the danger is that if, if, if pastors speak, if pastors treat those kind of jagged line things as straight line things, they've now attached the name of Jesus to what's really kind of a prudential matter of judgment and wisdom. And so, so that's a problem on the one hand. I think, though, what we have to be willing to do is speak to things that Scripture does speak to very clearly, and that what it means for us as the people of God to do this. And so, I mean, this is one of the things I, I think about oftentimes when you look at the, again, just the history of racism in, uh, in America and in the American church. The judgment starts with the household of God. So rather than first saying, here's what the USA should do, Mm -hmm. the church has to be has to say here's what christians should do and the problem isn't that you know historically the white church has been too apolitical it's that we haven't been the right kind of political in terms of proclaiming the kingdom of god proclaiming here's what it means we've actually worked really hard to kind of cut out those things of scripture that do speak directly to how we as christians should treat all human beings including our brothers and sisters in the black church that are the black church because of us, right? right? That, that's yeah. why we're talking this way because of our failure to be the church, right? Not just our failure to speak to politics. So I don't know if that really answers the question. <laughs> My sense is right now, pastors are in a, a, a lose, lose, lose. Oh yeah. Situation. Especially with the pandemic and all of the polarization of politics related to decisions and opening and all of that kind of stuff. You know, I, I like this language that he uses of the prophetic. Um, I think that's another, obviously, biblical terminology. And then, you know, Branson, what you talked about there, of drawing these connections from biblical stories. Yeah, applications are going to look different. Contextualization is going to look different. But there are definitely themes like the dignity of every human being, the well-being of every human being that are consistent. You know, some of the ways I've done this is like black and white racism is obviously not a central theme of the Bible, but Jewish and Gentile ethnic and social and religious differences is a massive yes. theme of the New Testament. And, you know, I mean, most of Paul's letters, the mystery of Christ language in Colossians is about the body of Jew and Gentile being reconciled together through the death of Jesus. Uh, so there's definitely 
some themes that connect. And so sometimes it's identifying that, yeah, we don't really think about the Jew Gentile differences today, but we definitely have a parallel of black white differences in the U.S. And in other countries, there are, there are other differences. I mean, the whole caste system and everything in India and Nepal and other places, they have their own kind of um, application in those ways of reconciliation. So I think partly it's creatively and imaginatively, but not in the, in the fake sense or the false sense, connecting those biblical realities, the, the, the historical context of those passages with a parallel context to today. I think that's a, a way that preachers can do it that will be heard by people who are who have ears to hear. Yeah, I think that's key too, because again, it positions it around, it centers around biblical language. And what you're helping people do is to better understand scripture itself and the social political reality that is the church, that is the people of God, it deals with questions of, of power, of money, of forgiveness. Mm -hmm of, you know, all these things about how humans construct their lives together, that that is what Jesus is doing, yeah. setting up this people. So this chapter speaks about um, two principles in African-American religious thought, Ubuntu and Ujima. And I think that in some ways, those are embedded in the way they read scripture. Mm -hmm. And we probably have almost white counter principles embedded in the way we read scripture. And part of what we're inviting as religious leaders, the way we're inviting people to read scripture is to read with eyes for social concerns in the Bible. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of churches fall into a trap of spiritualizing the Bible because of course the Bible does speak about spiritual things, but then we stop it there. And then we read all of these passages about, I have come to set the oppressed set a prisoner free. free. You know, the spiritually come... oppressed. Exactly. Oh, yes, the spiritually oppressed. And we miss the literal implications of those actions because we're reading it with this spiritual lens. And so I think we also have to invite our congregations to add on the social interconnectedness lens that's built into Black religious thought. And if we continue doing that, if you are regularly reminding people who are learning with you that the Bible is a political and social book as well as a spiritual book, and that whenever you read it, you should also ask societal social questions mm -hmm. about the text that you're encountering, then you're laying the groundwork to say, okay, now let's look at our societal context that we're in and translate that from one to another. I mean, do you think that one of the challenges is that as, a, as those trained in seminaries and to, on preaching in particular, we have been understandably asked to always raise the question, what does this mean for me? How do I apply this to my life? And not necessarily going to that next step of saying, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for society? How do we apply this? I mean, I love this Ubuntu language here um, in this idea of the interdependence. I think that's a part of maybe the whiteness of our whatever the the non-ubuntu approach is it's very individualized independent rather than interdependent we also of course have the the english translation problem that we you're preaching in english where we you. can't tell the u singles from the u plurals yeah. 
I like yeah. reading the Bible and the scripture study app where it translates right. all the you, you plurals to y'all. Yeah. Y'all. And it really stands out as a different sort of text that way. Yeah. How can we encourage people to read the Bible in a you plural language? And, and along with, with preaching, uh, what about spiritual disciplines and the way yeah. that they are taught and engaged with? That's a very sort of individualistic practice. Um, what does it look like for, for that to be done in the context of a congregation uh, and then in a broader community that that congregation might be existing in? What does, what does prayer, what does fasting, what does, um, what does silence, what does solitude look like in some of those, in, in, in a communal setting? not necessarily just a you as an individual apart from everyone else with Jesus. In right. There's also the question, the larger question of what is, what counts as discipleship? Does teaching people job skills and uh, community participation and college prep and things like that, do those count as discipleship? You know, they're, they're raising about the urban farm as an example of this, of this kind of like interdependent ministry, holistic kind of ministry. You know, Branson, you've been a part of this stuff of like the church and uh, the urban farm. And it's not clean. It's not neat. It's not easy. And now, I mean, there's some messiness to it. Yeah. I mean, to me that it was interesting to read this example because of the way the example that Wes gives to me strikes me as a really helpful and holistic model where you've got, again, all across the spectrum, you've got things that include Bible studies, small group sessions, presentations at churches on food justice and care, uh, as well as you know, the church. And uh, you know, from what I can tell from this, that the farm and the food itself is part of the holistic ministry rather than just a kind of um, service offered primarily to shareholders who Right, right. can afford to pay for it. He wasn't yeah. farmed out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so the example he gives is a helpful example of thinking about what, what is the mission? How do all of those things align and hold together? Versus, again, just recognizing like, depending on organizations or their missions or what they're trying to do, you know, maybe they're just, you know, they just want to grow food for shareholders who can afford to pay for it. Or, you know, and so it's really just about providing that, uh, but thinking about what is actually, what, what do, what does it look like to have actually have a place that benefits people and that benefits the community where you're in? And that's been a challenge. I mean, we've, we've had uh, actually classes from Kuiper work in the past uh, with the farm trying to figure out, it's not just as simple as like, oh, we've got fresh food here. It kind of circles back to what we we're at the beginning of the chapter of how churches and you know organizations or movements outside of the church can I mean partner might be too strong of a word but like move along together in the same direction even if there are different political thinking I mean even theological thinking but then that the the hard part I think is the blurriness of who's validating or who's whose views are acceptable unacceptable and what's like sam i mean i'll just pick on the black lives matter movement it's a it's a simple one it's, and people are familiar with it like if a church is supporting black lives matter does that mean we're endorsing every single thing 
that the Black Lives Matter movement holds to. Yeah, how, how can we constructively partner with organizations, institutions that don't necessarily agree with us on a lot of things? Um, I think, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a complex, very complex matter, but I think it's going to be more and more the future. There is certainly room for the sort of intellectual freedom that I see in the New Testament. I see, you know, Paul talking about your ability to make these really gray decisions, but also not being so hyper-concerned with how other people see you, but also making sure that you are presenting a good presentation of Christ when you go out into the world. And that mm -hmm. doesn't always look like one thing. Um, I think we have to be willing to invite feedback about how we are perceived from people outside of the church. And I think part of partnering with people outside of the church is inviting their feedback. And that you know, resonates with some of this, this idea of Kreskiv leadership and you know, inviting voices that might not always be listened to or you know, invited for that kind of feedback. I want to get back to the Ujima part of this in a little bit. Before we do that, though, on page 37, he uh, quotes Kenneth Hill in laying out these six models of religious education. Um, the charismatic, which focuses on preaching and teaching, holiness, which emphasizes the Holy Spirit and probably moral activity and stuff like that, Afrocentric education, contemplative education on prayer life and the more contemplative spiritual practices, confessional education, uh, denominational church beliefs, values, practices, wisdom, and then liberation education. Um, and so I actually have kind of two-part question for you. So one is, which of these would you identify as characteristic of your church and maybe even Kuiper College? And then the second question is, you know, if you're willing to admit it, how might have you stereotyped which of these is descriptive of the black church. If you want, I will tip my hand first. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I see my, my own church tradition as much more the confessional, the passing on of, of not necessarily denominational activity, but beliefs, theology. We're really about getting theology right and, and then related to that, the practices. And then, I mean, I would say that my view of the black church has mostly been maybe a combination of the character charismatic and liberation, that kind of stereotypic right or wrong. If I was asked on a survey, how do you perceive this? Those were the, those would be the ones that I would identify uh, of the black church. And so then some of the statistics that he gives here uh, are interesting to me about how uh, the actual responses of those within the black church would uh, identify themselves. I'd be interested in your, th your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of our of, of my own or our own, the charismatic and the confessional. I mean, those two stand out to me as 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 kind of the main focus of where my teaching probably comes from, passing those on. And yeah, I, I think then in my mind, it would probably be where where would I tend to to stereotype? It probably would be around. Are these the same ones you said? Hol holiness and liberation. I said charismatic and liberation. Yeah, I think hmm. so. Holiness and liberation. Although, I mean, part of this is so the the first person to ever uh, teach me limited atonement was uh, 
when I was when I was growing up, my dad my dad was a pastor, and his best pastor friend was Reverend Michael Coleman, who is pastor of one of the black churches in town. And I still remember him. I was probably like 16. Uh, Wednesday night youth group. He came and led the youth group and taught us about limited atonement, and oh, yeah. and, and laid down this like hardcore Calvinism that I was just kind of starting to. What is this Calvinist stuff? Um, and so, I mean, I think about different conversations that I had with him uh, as very much centering around kind of the confessional, you know, these like yeah. pretty precise theological beliefs. Uh, if I remember right, he was a graduate of Covenant Seminary and was was really kind of somebody who was a Calvinist influence on, on my life. My upbringing, I would say, was my upbringing in the church was, I would say, more charismatic and holiness, which... I would say my current church experience would be charismatic and is or de the denomination I'm in, while formerly would have been far more confessional, I think is shifting towards largely charismatic. Mm -hmm. But I think I would have drawn out the same features. And if I were to stereotype the black church, I would have thought perhaps charismatic holiness liberation. So then it's interesting to me that in this research, only 7% of the respondents cited liberation and holiness-oriented religious education as important to the, the Black church compared to the charismatic, which is 88%, confessional, 88%. And then in the next sense, however, a third of the respondents desired greater emphasis on liberation and holiness. To see that kind of like self-perception among those in the Black church and what they're desiring. And then for us who are more part of the white church, kind of our perception of it, of the black church and black theology in particular. And it, make, it made me particularly wonder about, is that because of my training in doctoral and master's level stuff of what I'm told about the black church and not what I actually hear from the black church? Oh, absolutely. That speaks totally to our segregation within our congregations and in academia. I often experienced being taught capital T theology, which was white reformed theology. Oh, yeah. and let's read and criticize this liberation theology was how I was taught in my academia to encounter black theology. Yeah. Like here's something for us to criticize. Yeah. I mean, you even see this historically. Had there been times where our people groups were oppressed, we would voice similar themes and highlight similar biblical passages and note things about oppression and injustice and work our ways and make our voices known so that those things would change. You think of specifically themes of Exodus, uh, yeah. themes of the crucifixion, right? And as we as we work to sort of parse out redemptive history, we talk in three or four categories, right? Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. How how in the world do we miss the story of the Exodus uh, in, in the way in which we, we see ourselves as part of the community that, uh, that, that, God, is, um, that God is using in his world, right? Um, how do we move to redemption, this sort of triumphalistic moment without passion and and the crucifixion and then where's the already not yet yeah right like even in the way that we parse out some of those categories we're, we're missing 
were missing parts that largely uh, black theology and the black church would hone in on as saying this is this is very much so part of our experience, right? Well, and that's what I like about him bringing in this African language of the the examples of Ubuntu and Ujima, of like from the African perspective, there isn't this kind of splicing of individual and community, but it's like individual dash community, like the 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 one is part of the whole and the whole is the part of the one and what affects one affects all and you know whereas at least in my own experience we very much have this like well that's for the individual stuff over here and that's for the communal stuff over there um so i mean this this ujima the swahili word for collective work and responsibility i found this really helpful and thought-provoking i'm on page 46 kind of right in the middle um Thus, embracing community as an aspect of the normative framework of Ujima does not diminish individuals. On the contrary, individuals become whole in relationship with others in community. I find that quite counter to kind of my own thinking and upbringing. And but it, I find it to be quite aligned with um, the Bible with the Bible and my study of Hebrew and kind of an expanded definition of like the word nefesh to be more yeah. than just like your soul, but also your body and actually extending beyond your own body to your family. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, to me though, what I find really helpful about both of these words is that they are, again, they're tied in with core, I think biblical and theological concepts right. uh, that, that help us to understand who we are as, always as persons in relation uh, and in that way part of what it works against is sort of the, the the fundamental tenets of individualism which are really at the heart of I think how most Americans perceive life liberty, liberty. Are life liberty the the pursuit of happiness. happiness but and so for me though that also then raises concern or, or it raises the question because I think there is a way, or this, this is my wonderings, is a lot of times I think when we use uh, a word like justice, okay, that has so many possible nuances and meanings, there's a way of thinking about justice primarily within an individual, within an individual and an individual rights framework. And that is in fact, I think the dominant way of thinking about justice from an American standpoint, it's about related to the rights of an individual. Um, I, I think what that doesn't have, though, is a concept of obligation or responsibility or community um, that we're, you know, my obligation to you is to give you freedom to be the individual you want to be and to <laughs> pursue your own thing. But beyond that, there's not a sense of obligation or responsibility, which is why kind of individual rights-based language has a hard time even thinking about something like family obligation or parent-child obligation because it doesn't fit within a rights language framework. Um, and so to me, it's, it's actually a richer, thicker conception of justice uh, that revolves around that notion of responsibility of belonging to one another than simply justice as making sure that I'm indifferent enough to what you're doing to give you the space to just pursue that. <laughs> it reminds me of the conversations I'm hearing in the groups today that are discussing changing our our criminal justice system altogether and moving away from an incarceration model into a community restoration model mm -hmm. that focuses on resolving a conflict, not just between the two individuals that had it, 
but also its impact on the community. So if you were to use one of the examples that our nation is dealing with is a black person dying at the hands of a cop, it wouldn't perceive the injustice and the need for restorative justice as just between the police officer and the black person, but also the impact that that has on the entire community right. as the justice that is needed. And if we're not part of that collective larger community, that's not our experiences and we're not hearing the stories of those who those are their experiences. That's one of the things I really appreciate about this chapter is bringing in this, again, this idea of hearing people's stories, uh, listening to voices that are not always heard. And I think this is something we have to take very, very seriously as white people as we choose which voices to listen to. Yeah. It can be really easy to pick the black activist that talks the way you do or the person who's like the least angry or the person who's the most articulate and all of this one is embedded in the history of racism in the united states but also we're being called to something else like christ was attentive to the least of these and mm -hmm. so we have to pay attention to the people who aren't rising to our made-up standards of who gets to speak yeah i like this chapter a lot yeah, I guess I just want to repeat the emphasis that this chapter has on looking for prophetic voices outside of the church. It was a good challenge for me. Mm -hmm. I think about how to doing that well, um, that respects people <laughs> and doesn't continue to perpetuate some imposed white constructed methodology to determine who's who's in and who's out and maybe i'll close with this on page 57 i want to i want to read a quote from uh the in summary he's using this language of prophetic inquiry so listening to other voices and then prophetically not only speaking but also acting towards societal change uh, he summarized it this way prophetic inquiry continues the biblical tradition of black religion and ecclesiology that centers on an agenda of social justice action and religious piety based on God's will for liberation from oppression to wholeness of marginalized people. And that, that paragraph kind of encapsulates this, like these are themes that we have throughout scripture that we hold to theologically, and that in particular in applying it into uh, the black community, this is um, some prophetic words that we need to hear and to live by. So I want to thank you all for joining in this conversation and having this discussion. Um, we'll continue on to the next chapter next week. Uh, and for you listening to this podcast, we thank you. And if you have um, questions or comments, you can always find us on the Facebook page and you can post those questions right there. And um, perhaps your questions will be discussed in uh, the next podcast episode we have. Thank you for listening and may the grace of God be with you all.